Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. designed to help you fall asleep. Find us at snoozecast.com and now also on YouTube. This episode is brought to you by Sonorous Dialects. Tonight, we'll read the next part to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, a classic science fiction adventure novel by French writer Jules Verne. In the last episode, we learned that Captain Farragut and his crew on the Abraham Lincoln are led by their faith that the monster exists and that they will find it. All believe in the monster except Ned Land, a French-Canadian and the best harpooner around. A surly man, Land is drawn to Aronnax since they both share French culture. Land says that he has never seen a narwhal puncture a ship. Aranax tries to persuade Land with mathematical calculations that an infinitely powerful creature could inhabit the depths of the sea. Land is not fully swayed. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. Chapter 5 Adventure The voyage of the Abraham Lincoln was for a long time marked by no special incident. 
but one circumstance happened which showed the wonderful dexterity of Ned Land and proved what confidence we might place in him. The 30th of June, the frigate spoke some American whalers from whom we learned that they knew nothing about the narwhal, but one of them, the captain of the Monroe, knowing that Ned Land had shipped on board the Abraham Lincoln, begged for his help in chasing a whale they had in sight. Commander Farragut, desirous of seeing Ned Land at work, gave him permission to go on board the Monroe, and fate served our Canadian so well that, instead of one whale, he harpooned two with a double blow, striking one straight to the heart and catching the other after some minutes' pursuit. Decidedly, if the monster ever had to do with Ned Land's harpoon, I would not bet in its favor. The frigate skirted the southeast coast of America with great rapidity. The 3rd of July we were at the opening of the Straits of Magellan. But Commander Farragut would not take a torturous passage, but doubled Cape Horn. The ship's crew agreed with him, and certainly it was possible that they might meet the narwhal in this narrow pass. Many of the sailors affirmed that the monster could not pass there, that he was too big for that. The 6th of July, about three o'clock in the afternoon, the Abraham Lincoln, at 15 miles to the south, doubled the solitary island. This lost rock at the extremity of the American continent to which some Dutch sailors gave the name of their native town, Cape Horn. The course was taken towards the northwest, and the next day the screw of the frigate was at last beating the waters of the Pacific. Keep your eyes open, called out the sailors, and they were opened widely, both eyes and glasses, a little dazzled, it is true, by the prospect of two thousand dollars had not an instant's repose. I myself, for whom money had no charms, was not the least attentive on board, giving but few minutes to my meals, but a few hours to sleep, indifferent to either rain or sunshine. I did not leave the poop of the vessel. Now leaning on the netting of the forecastle, now on the taffrail, I devoured with eagerness the soft foam which whitened the sea as far as the eye could reach. And how often have I shared the emotion of the majority of the crew when some capricious whale raised its black back above the waves? The poop of the vessel was crowded on a moment. The cabins poured forth a 
torrent of sailors and officers, each with heaving breast and troubled eye, watching the course of the cetacean. I looked and looked till I was nearly blind, whilst Conseil kept repeating in a calm voice, If, sir, you would not squint so much, you would see better. But vain excitement. The Abraham Lincoln checked its speed and made for the animal signaled a simple wail, which soon disappeared amidst a storm of abuse. But the weather was good. It was then the bad season in Australia. The July of that zone corresponding to our January in Europe but the sea was beautiful and easily scanned round a vast circumference. The 20th of July, the Tropic of Capricorn was cut by 105 degrees of longitude, and the 27th of the same month, we crossed the equator on the 110th meridian. This passed the frigate took a more decided westerly direction and scoured the central waters of the Pacific. Commander Farragut thought, and with reason, that it was better to remain in deep water and keep clear of continents or islands, which the beast itself seemed to shun, perhaps because there was not enough water for him. The frigate passed at some distance from the Sandwich Islands, crossed the Tropic of Cancer, and made for the China Seas. We were on the theater of the last diversions of the monster, and, to say the truth, we no longer lived on board. The entire ship's crew were undergoing an excitement, of which I can give no idea they could not eat, they could not sleep. Twenty times a day, a misconception or an optical illusion of some sailor seated on the taffrail would cause dreadful perspirations, and these emotions, twenty times repeated, kept us in a state of excitement that a reaction was unavoidable. And truly, reaction soon showed itself. For three months, during which a day seemed an age, the Abraham Lincoln furrowed all the waters of the northern Pacific, running at whales, making sharp deviations from her course, veering suddenly from one tack to another, stopping suddenly, putting on steam, and backing ever and anon at the risk of deranging our machinery. And not one point of the Japanese or American coast was left unexplored. The warmest partisans of the enterprise now became its most ardent detractors. Reaction mounted from the crew to the captain himself, and certainly, had it not been for the resolute determination on the part of Captain Farragut, the frigate would have headed due southward. 
This useless search could not last much longer. That Abraham Lincoln had nothing to reproach herself with. She had done her best to succeed. Never had an American's ship's crew shown more zeal or patience. Its failure could not be placed to their charge. There remained nothing but to return. This was represented to the commander. The sailors could not hide their discontent, and the service suffered. I will not say there was a mutiny on board, but after a reasonable period of obstinacy, Captain Farragut, as Columbus did, asked for three days' patience. If in three days the monster did not appear, the man at the helm should give three turns of the wheel, and the Abraham Lincoln would make for the European seas. This promise was made on the 2nd of November. It had the effect of rallying the ship's crew. The ocean was watched with renewed attention. Each one wished for a last glance in which to sum up his remembrance. Glasses were used with feverish activity. It was a grand defiance given to the giant narwhal and he could scarcely fail to answer the summons and appear. Two days passed. The steam was at half pressure. A thousand schemes were tried to attract the attention and stimulate the apathy of the animal in case it should be met in those parts. Large quantities of bacon were trailed in the wake of the ship Small craft radiated in all directions round the Abraham Lincoln as she lay to and did not leave a spot of the sea unexplored. But the night of the 4th of November arrived without the unveiling of this submarine mystery. The next day, the 5th of November, at 12, the delay would, morally speaking, expire. After that time, Commander Farragut, faithful to his promise, was to turn the course to the southeast and abandon forever the northern regions of the Pacific. The frigate was then in 31 degrees 15 seconds north latitude, and 136 degrees 42nd seconds east longitude. The coast of Japan still remained less than 200 miles to leeward. Night was approaching. They had just struck eight bells. Large clouds veiled the face of the moon. Then in its first quarter, the sea undulated peaceably under the stern of the vessel. At that moment, I was leaning forward on the starboard netting. Conseil, standing near me, was looking straight before him. The crew, perched in the ratlines, 
examined the horizon which contracted and darkened by degrees. Officers with their night glasses scoured the growing darkness. Sometimes the ocean sparkled under the rays of the moon, which darted between two clouds. Then all trace of light was lost in the darkness. In looking at Conseil, I could see he was undergoing a little of the general influence. At least I thought so. Perhaps for the first time, his nerves vibrated to a sentiment of curiosity. Come, Gonsei, said I. This is the last chance of pocketing the two thousand dollars. May I be permitted to say, sir, replied Conseil, that I never reckoned on getting the prize, and had the government of the Union offered a hundred thousand dollars, it would have been none the poorer. You are right, Conseil. It is a foolish affair, after all, and one upon which we entered too lightly. What time lost, what useless emotions. We should have been back in France six months ago. In your little room, sir, replied Conseil, and in your museum, sir, and I should have already classed all your fossils, sir. As you say, Conseil, I fancy we shall run a fair chance of being laughed at for our pains. That's tolerably certain, replied Conseil, quietly. I think they will make fun of you, sir. And must I say it? Go on, my good friend. Well, sir, you will only get your desserts. Indeed. When one has the honor of being a savant as you are, sir, one should not expose oneself to... Conseil had not time to finish his compliment. In the midst of general silence, a voice had just been heard. It was the voice of Ned Land shouting, Look out there, the very thing we are looking for, on our weather beam. Chapter 6 At Full Steam At this cry, the whole ship's crew hurried toward the harpooner, commander, officers, masters, sailors, cabin boys, even the engineers left their engines, and the stokers their furnaces. The order to stop her had been given, and the frigate now simply went on by her own momentum. The darkness was then profound, and however good the Canadian's eyes were, I asked myself how he had managed to see, and what he had been able to see. My heart beat as if it would break. But Ned Land was not mistaken. 
and we all perceive the object he pointed to. At two cables length from the Abraham Lincoln, on the starboard quarter, the sea seemed to be illuminated all over. It was not a mere phosphoric phenomenon. The monster emerged from some fathoms from the water, and then threw out that very intense but mysterious light mentioned in the report of several captains. This magnificent irradiation must have been produced by an agent of great shining power. The luminous part traced on the sea an immense oval, much elongated, the center of which condensed a burning heat, whose overpowering brilliancy died out by successive gradations. It is only a massing of phosphoric particles, cried one of the officers. No, sir, certainly not, I replied. That brightness is of an essentially electrical nature. Besides, see, see, it moves. It is moving forwards, backwards. It is darting towards us. A general cry arose from the frigate. Silence, said the captain. Up with the helm. Reverse the engines. The steam was shut off and the Abraham Lincoln, beating to port, described a semicircle. Right the helm, go ahead, cried the captain. These orders were executed, and the frigate moved rapidly from the burning light. I was mistaken. She tried to sheer off, but the supernatural animal approached with a velocity double her own. We gasped for breath. Stupefaction more than fear made us dumb and motionless. The animal gained on us, sporting with the waves. It made the round of the frigate, which was then making fourteen knots, and enveloped it with its electric rings like luminous dust. Then it moved away two or three miles, leaving a phosphorescent track, like those volumes of steam that express trains leave behind. All at once from the dark line of the horizon, whither it retired to gain its momentum, the monster rushed suddenly towards the Abraham Lincoln with alarming rapidity. Stopping suddenly about twenty feet from the hull and died out, not diving under the water, for its brilliancy did not abate. But suddenly, and as if the source of the brilliant emanation was exhausted, then it reappeared on the other side of the vessel, as if it had turned and slid under the hull. Any moment a collision might have occurred, which would have been fatal to us. However, I was astonished at the maneuvers of the frigate, 
she fled and did not attack. On the captain's face, generally so impassive, was an expression of unaccountable astonishment. Mr. Aranax, he said, I do not know with what formidable being I have to deal, and I will not imprudently risk my frigate in the midst of this darkness. Besides, how attack this unknown thing? How defend oneself from it? Wait for daylight, and the scene will change. You have no further doubt, Captain, of the nature of the animal? No, sir. It is evidently a gigantic narwhal. And an electric one. Perhaps, added I, one can only approach it with a torpedo. Undoubtedly, replied the captain. If it possesses such dreadful power, it is the most terrible animal that was ever created. That is why, sir, I must be on my guard. The crew were on their feet all night. No one thought of sleep. The Abraham Lincoln, not being able to struggle with such velocity, had moderated its pace and sailed at half speed. For its part, the narwhal, imitating the frigate, let the waves rock it at will and seemed decided not to leave the scene of the struggle. Towards midnight, however, it disappeared, or, to use a more appropriate term, it died out like a large glowworm. Had it fled, one could only fear. But at seven minutes to one o'clock in the morning, a deafening whistling was heard, like that produced by a body of water rushing with great intensity. The captain, Ned Land, and I were then on the poop, eagerly peering through the profound darkness. Ned Land asked the commander, You have often heard the roaring of the whales. Often, sir, but never such whales the sight of which brought me in two thousand dollars. If I can only approach within four harpoons length of it. But to approach it, said the commander, I ought to put a whaler at your disposal. Certainly, sir. That will be trifling with the lives of my men. And mine too, simply said the harpooner. Towards two o'clock in the morning, the burning light reappeared, not less intense, about five miles to windward of the Abraham Lincoln. Notwithstanding the distance and the noise of the wind and sea, one heard distinctly the loud strokes of the animal's tail and even its panting breath. It seemed that at the moment that the enormous narwhal had come to take breath, at the surface of the water, the air was engulfed in its lungs, like the steam in the vast cylinders of a machine 
of two thousand horsepower. Hmm, thought I, a whale with the strength of a cavalry regiment would be a pretty whale. We were on the deck till daylight and prepared for the combat. The fishing implements were laid along the hammock nettings. The second lieutenant loaded the blunderbusses, which could throw harpoons to the distance of a mile, and long duck guns with explosive bullets. Ned Land contented himself with sharpening his harpoon, a terrible weapon in his hands. At six o'clock, day began to break, and, with the first glimmer of light, the electric light of the narwhal disappeared. At seven o'clock, the day was sufficiently advanced, but a very thick sea fog obscured our view, and the best spyglasses could not pierce it. That caused disappointment and anger. I climbed the mizzenmast. Some officers were already perched on the mastheads. At eight o'clock, the fog lay heavily on the waves, and its thick scrolls rose little by little. The horizon grew wider and clearer at the same time. Suddenly, just as on the day before, Ned Land's voice was heard. The thing itself on the port quarter, cried the harpooner. Every eye was turned towards the point indicated. There, a mile and a half from the frigate, a long blackish body emerged a yard above the wave. Its tail, agitated, produced a considerable eddy. Never did a tail beat the sea with such force. An immense track of dazzling whiteness marked the passage of the animal and described a long curve. The frigate approached the cetacean. I examined it thoroughly. The reports of the Shannon and of the Helvetia had rather exaggerated its size and I estimated its length at only 250 feet. As to its dimensions, I could only conjecture them to be admirably proportioned. While I watched this phenomena, two jets of steam and water were ejected from its vents and rose to the height of 120 feet. Thus, I ascertained its way of breathing. I concluded definitively that it belonged to the vertebrate branch, class mammalia. The crew waited impatiently for their chief's orders. The latter, after having observed the animal attentively, called the engineer. The engineer ran to him. Sir, said the commander, you have steam up? Yes, sir, answered the engineer. 
will make up your fires and put on all steam. Three hurrahs greeted this order. The time for the struggle had arrived. Some moments after, the two funnels of the frigate vomited torrents of black smoke and the bridge quaked under the trembling of the boilers. The Abraham Lincoln, propelled by her wonderful screw, went straight at the animal. The latter allowed it to come within half a cable's length. Then, as if disdaining to dive, it took a little turn and stopped a short distance off. 